Hello! Greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And you may have noticed, but we live in a very perilous and dystopic age. Yes, we all go on in our existence, but a lot of people are struck with the feeling that just many things aren't right. There's a lot of anxiety out there about how things are going right now and where we're headed as a nation, as a culture, as a civilization. A lot of people seem haunted by things beyond their control or even their understanding. Now, what are some of the reasons that people give to explain these kind of things? Well, a lot of people will consider it in terms of uh, the surface level. Maybe it's the political issues of the day or economic difficulties that are going on. Others think our culture has not progressed sufficiently enough, that we still have too much baggage from the past. Others think the opposite, that the culture has gone to rot because it's not holding firm to various ideas of the past. To some, religion is the problem. For others, it's because people have abandoned religion that we have all of these difficulties. And there's a lot that you often hear about these things that some people give that, well, you know, the reason we have these problems today is because they've taken God out of things. Uh, some think everybody, everything went wrong when God was taken out of the classroom with prayer. Others when uh, God was taken out of the government or something of the sort. Today I like to ask the question, what if this latter line of thinking is accurate, but far more pronounced and far greater levels than might be imagined? What if a major part of our problem today is that God has been taken out of his own creation? Now there is a word which describes what we can say has happened to Western civilization, and that word is disenchantment. What is disenchantment? What does it mean in terms of God and his creation? And ultimately, what difference does it make? Well, what do we know about disenchantment? What is disenchantment? Well, it's the loss of enchantment, right? That, that seems to really help as a definition, doesn't it? Well, the loss in the belief of the magic, so to speak. Uh, uh, a loss of belief in things of a mystical or ethereal sort. If we want to look at a great example of this in our lives, we can think about Santa Claus and Christmas as a great way of explaining the concept. Now, uh, maybe small children around, there's a spoiler alert here. Uh, because a lot of children will maintain an enchanted view of things. And they'll believe in things they read in books or the stories they hear. So they'll believe in fairies or trolls, other mythological characters, and of course, in Santa Claus. Now, a lot is made of the process of disenchantment by which the quote-unquote Christmas magic is lost. Perhaps you've seen a movie like The Polar Express. Now consider the double layer there. That the narrator comes to a belief in Santa Claus because of his time on this train, and he grows up to watch his friends and even his sister as they grow and become disenchanted. But as the end says, the bell still rings for him after so many years. But why do we do such things to our children, to ourselves? You know, we may have come to the knowledge that Santa Claus does not really exist. Everybody in charge of that movie, for instance, is aware that Santa Claus, as the story goes, does not exist. But at the same time, it seems we really want him to exist. We really want to recreate the magic that we feel that we've lost. And so we do that through our children, and they will do that through their children, and so on and so forth. So that's the way we can understand disenchantment. Another way is the way the word is often used in our culture and society. Uh, it's when there's this recognition that the ways of the world uh, are different than what we were told. Uh, when you grow up and realize that uh, uh, 
a lot of the things you were told about what could happen in life were really lies. And uh, when you realize they're lies, it leads to this moment of disenchantment where you become very cynical and jaded about life uh, in general. And these examples should help us understand uh, in a little bit what the ultimate disenchantment would be which is used in sociological terms to describe the devaluation of supernaturalism and mysticism in Western civilization and the justification and rationalism, rationalization thereof. Let me see, wait a second, why are we spending so much time talking about this? Well, because it's been advanced in a thesis uh, explored by Charles Taylor in a book he called The Secular Age, uh, which was a treatise in which he was trying to answer this basic question. In 1500, most everybody in the Western world believed in God and developed a worldview accordingly. But by the 20th century, the opening was given for a lot of people to no longer believe in God, but still to be able to look at the world and make sense of the world in some way or another. And so he wished to explore how that happened. And it's a question of extreme importance for us, even though we may think it's a little arcane, because throughout Scripture, the people of God believe that the universe is full of God and His creations, both physical and spiritual. They believed in angels, demons, creatures like Behemoth and Leviathan, and they saw the hand of God in all things. We see this in Job 40 and 41, Psalm 72, 19, and Matthew 12, 28, and 26, 53. And to this day, Christians struggle to maintain faith in anything in the spiritual realm beyond God. And we believe there's a God out there, but beyond that, it's, it's kind of hard to believe there's anything else going on in the spiritual realm and what it might mean for things to be going on in the spiritual realm. And so Charles Taylor's question is a good question, and one we need to ask. What happened? How did our society become so disenchanted? I'd like to suggest that one of the main ways is something that was a change of assumption that was perhaps not even fully recognized at the time. Because throughout the end of the ancient world, in which the uh, time of Christianity began, and into the medieval world, most people believed in an enchanted world, a place filled with God's presence and all kinds of creatures that he has made, physical and spiritual. And this trend continued in the early modern period. Isaac Newton, we know him best as the guy who discovered gravity, right? But he was also very much into what we would consider mystical or paranormal pursuits. He especially was attempting to make alchemy work. Alchemy was the attempt to turn various regular metals into gold. Uh, he was not very successful in that, but it was a very big concern in the Middle Ages. But soon after Isaac Newton, a sea change took place in the 17th or 18th century, where people just no longer thought the universe is imminent. What does that mean? Well, it means that the assumption shifted, that everything was made by God and manifest for His glory to the assumption that whatever could not be perceived could not be assumed to exist. And therefore, anything uh, that we can't perceive doesn't really exist. Now, it might be because of Descartes and his whole, I think, therefore I am, could be because of Immanuel Kant or uh, other challenges that were leveled against the way we know things, against epistemology. Uh, it might have come from just sheer rebellion. Uh, some overconfidence based upon the idea that, okay, we now could look into the universe and see that it was much wider and vaster uh, than we had imagined to begin with, that the Earth was not the center of the, universe, the, the, the solar system, let alone the universe, and therefore all the previous beliefs about God and the spiritual could be easily dismissed. But what's so strange about this is that nothing was discovered in the 16th, 17th, or 18th centuries that was incompatible with the view of the existence of the divine the spiritual realm. 
Put simply, it didn't have to go this way. We didn't have to become disenchanted as we learned more about the way the universe uh, exists. Now, the shift began before the Enlightenment, but the Enlightenment is what really enhanced it, because the Enlightenment looked at all religious institutions and superstitions of the day with contempt. They emphasized reason over all things. It tried to attempt to clear the air of superstition because of their exercise of reason, the explanations of science. And as science developed more and greater explanation of things, especially with the publication of Darwin's On the Origin of Species in 1859, it did seem to a lot of people that so many of the superstitious ideas of their ancestors had come out of ignorance of scientific processes. And so well-meaning Christians had attempted to meet such criticisms on their own ground. They were trying to develop an apologetics, trying to find a way to demonstrate the existence of God by taking him out of his system and then trying to demonstrate his hand in how everything worked. For a few years, we could imagine that system might have been okay, but for the past few years, it's been clear that that system has failed miserably and has led to people's faith cratering uh, when they put their trust in such things to argue in for the existence of God. And so it's in this way that the Enlightenment has paved the way for the thorough rejection of any and all things supernatural or mystical, and replacing them with scientific means of measurement in all things. Now you might think that everything I've just said is kind of crazy talk, but think about the story that you've been told all your life. What is the story you've been told about the universe? The universe is dead and sterile, right? It's full of all this empty space. It's full of a void, of nothingness. Galaxies exist, stars all spread far apart. And we're this cosmic accident of life, right? In an otherwise dead, sterile, and foreboding universe. What does life look like to us? Well, it's got to be something organic. Something in nature. That, that, that lives, according, has, meets various criteria for life. We look at rocks or minerals and things like that, and we conclude those things are not don't have any life, and therefore we can ruthlessly exploit them to our benefit without asking any questions about it. For that matter, even things that are alive, animal and plant life, is all under our subjection, and we ruthlessly exploit them for our benefit without any qualms. And if we're honest with ourselves, especially if we have a belief uh, in, in God and Christ, uh, it, we felt a kind of cognitive dissonance, a kind of a, a disconnect mentally to make sense of what we read in the Bible with the way that we've been taught to see the world around us. It's very hard to reconcile those two. And Christians have also proven willing to really baptize the Enlightenment's disenchantment. And many have denied the continuing existence, or at least the continuing activity, within the spiritual realm, developing a very uniquely Christian form of deism. In fact, it wouldn't, shouldn't be surprised that uh, deism was the main religion of the Enlightenment. Uh, the idea that God set up all natural functions, like a clock uh, maker create and wind the clock, he wound the clock and just let it run. And so he's distant and remote, he's not here in the middle of it. That's deism. And so Christian deism would just update that, uh, saying God has spoken through this prophets in Israel, worked in Christ, established a kingdom, and then he set it all in motion, in process, and uh, hasn't been as active ever since. And so all of that indicates dis disenchantment. And so we do well to turn to Scripture to see what God has made known about the nature of the universe. And the one thing that you see over and over again 
The earth and the heavens are full of the glory of God. Psalm 19.1, Psalm 72.19, Isaiah 6 and verse 3, Habakkuk 3 and verse 3. Paul says in Romans 1, 18-20, that God's eternal power and divine nature are so manifest in their creation that nobody has an excuse. Everybody should be able to confess the existence of the one God because they should have been able to see his hand in the creation. And we need to keep something very, very much at the forefront of our minds. What did, the, what did Jesus emphasize to the Sadducees in Matthew 22 and verse 32? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That is why John says, in Jesus was life, the light of of men, and he is the life in John 1 3 and John 14 and verse 6. And this makes sense because what happened? God made a good creation that was teeming with life in the first chapter of Genesis. What went wrong was when sin came in with Adam and Eve and corruption and death entered in Genesis 3, Romans 5, and Romans 8. If it hadn't been for the fall, we would, everything would be full of life. There would be no death. There would be no sterility as we have come to conceive of it. Paul's quotation in Acts 17 and verse 28 is very telling. In God we live and move and have our being. Paul will also say in Colossians 1 and verse 17 that in Jesus is before all things and in Jesus all things hold together. The Hebrews author, author as he begins his, his letter, declares... Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so, all things subsist in Christ and are upheld in Christ. God continues to sustain the creation. And so, we have messages in Scripture that these days we might read, we might quote. In fact, Psalm 148 is a great example. Uh, Psalm 148 is even enthroned in song, and something that we might sing all the time. But do we really think about what we're singing about it? Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for He commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise Yahweh from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise Yahweh. It's, how many times have you realized, well, you know, they lived in an earlier time. They were primitive people. They thought that the creation would somehow be able to praise its creator. But we've all learned better, right, through the scientific process. Or have we? 
Because Revelation 5 and verse 13, all things on the earth, above the earth, and under the earth, praise God as well in that vision. Uh, maybe we've gone too far with our accepting of the scientific worldview. Because I would suggest that the psalmist absolutely expected all things created to praise its their creator. Even if not in the way that we would expect with words, but they all praise their creator when they function the way that they have been established and they continue to be sustained by him and are thankful for him. And so the scriptures, as we can see, don't envision the universe as a massive dead void. In fact, the universe is alive in scripture. It is throbbing with the glory of God. It is suffused with his power and his might. And in fact, it entirely subsists in him. And this gets us to an interesting Greek word, the Greek word cosmos. And perhaps one of our difficulties in perceiving this enchanted universe is that word cosmos. The core concept of cosmos is something orderly or arranged. In 1 Peter 3, in verse 3, Peter will use it to talk about uh, the orderly arrangement of hair and clothes. And it can and often is used to speak primarily of the world as it is currently constituted. The world as it is uh, presently ordered, uh, some have suggested the domination system, uh, the way in this fallen corrupt world. Uh, and that's why in John 13 and verse 1, Jesus can say he could be departing from the world or could speak of the world's goods, uh, John does in 1 John 3 and verse 17. But as you can tell, our word cosmos comes from the Greek cosmos. It's the arrangement of the universe. And in fact, the, there are a lot of passages that read somewhat differently when you consider it as cosmos, rather than limiting it to just the globe or the way people are. So in John 3.16, God so loved the cosmos that he sent his Son. In Matthew 16, verse 26, what will, what will a man do if he gains the whole cosmos but loses his life? In Ephesians 1, and verse 4, God has chosen us in Jesus before the foundation of the cosmos. Now, we have divided earth and heaven, but the Bible sees the whole as part of God's created order. It's all subject to him, even if many of its aspects remain in rebellion. Furthermore, the Bible does not envision a spiritual realm where there's just God. Throughout the Old Testament, there is this title that God has. He is Yahweh Tzavot, Yahweh of hosts. A host is an army, so he is Yahweh of armies, or Yahweh of powers. The hosts of heaven were created by God to accomplish his purposes. We see this in Nehemiah 9 and verse 6 and Psalm 33 and verse 6. But it's clear when Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41, that hell has been prepared for the devil and his angels, that at least some of that host had rebelled. They began working contrary to God's purposes. And so heaven may not necessarily be a place that's up, just a place that's all around beyond our perception, is full of all sorts of spiritual creatures that God has made according to his purposes. And throughout the Bible, it is believed that they remain active for good and for ill. We've, we're familiar with angels, right? In Matthew 26, 53, Jesus says that if he called upon God, God would send him 12, six, 12 legions of angels, you know, tons of, of tons of angels. Hebrews 1 and verse 14, that uh, there are angels that are minister to the needs of those who are being saved. We've also heard of demons. In Matthew 12 and verse 28, Jesus speaks about the fact he's been casting out demons, and the finger of God is us in their midst. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, Paul warns against those who have fallen and pray to the doctrines of demons. 
In the Old Testament, we read of the Cherubim and the Seraphim, Genesis 3.24. The Cherubim with the flaming sword guards the way to the Garden of Eden. The Seraphim are the ones uh, that are surrounding the God and His throne in Isaiah 6. They're spiritual creatures, perhaps distinct from angels, perhaps just an order of angels. In Ephesians 6 and verse 12, Paul tells us that our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities over this cosmic darkness. In Colossians 2 and verse 15, Jesus has triumphed over these powers and principalities. Uh, Paul believed these things existed. They were very real, and they were the reason why uh, Christians were in such distress. And as we can tell in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, a great story, uh, that the boundary between the spiritual and the physical is not as strong as we might imagine. Um, Elisha is there. He has been telling people. Elisha has been telling the king of Israel exactly where the king of Aram is going to camp and, and try to attack. And so the king of Aram has sent his entire army to Dothan, to Elisha, to attack him. And Elisha's servant sees this. Elisha's servant starts freaking out because there's this great army in front of him. And yet Elisha declares with confidence that there are more on his side than there are against him. And servant thinks he's absolutely crazy. And so, Elisha prays in verse 17 of 2 Kings 6, Oh Yahweh, please open his eyes that he may see. So Yahweh opened his eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Those chariots of fire did not just happen to appear. They had been there before. The servant just hadn't seen them. And it is a good reminder that there's all kinds of things going on in the spiritual realm all around us hidden from our view. Just because it's hidden from our view doesn't mean it's not there. And so the testimony of Scripture is uniformly clear. The creation, all of it, is alive. It is quickened by the God who sustains it. For it all exists within him in some way. The spiritual realm not only exists, but suffuses the material creation in ways beyond our understanding. So what are we supposed to do about this? We need to find re-enchantment. What's interesting, though, is that uh, re-enchantment is not as far from us as we might imagine. Because the Enlightenment has succeeded in delegitimizing anything supernatural or mystical, but the excess is being exposed. Because even though people are very scientifically minded today, isn't there a, not an intense interest in paranormal mystical thing? Why does everybody get so excited about Halloween? When you go to the movies, what's it full of? Zombies and ghosts, those who are possessed by demons, those who transcend regular human ability. Most people still think there's more out there than we can perceive. It's interesting, there's so much work done by the scientific establishment, but we all seem to be like Fox Mulder and the X-Files. I want to believe. Because yes, we can't deny it, the ancestors were superstitious. And they were a little overly superstitious. But complete rejection of all superstition is just as excessive and no closer to the real truth about the reality in which we live. And so we need to find re-enchantment. We need to open ourselves up again to the existence of things beyond our perception, the reality of the spiritual realm. And first and foremost, this requires a repentance, a reorientation of our thinking. We're not alone in a vast void. We are the crowning achievement in God's good and living creation. It's a very different way of looking at the universe between a vast void where we are a cosmic accident and the belief that this is all alive 
and glorifying God, and we are his crowning achievement. Psalm 8. Everything that exists does so through God's sustenance and power. And that was why we need to be good stewards of what God has given us, because these things are gifts for our use. They're not dead objects for our exploitation. Why is it that people feel like they get closer to God in nature? Well, perhaps it's because when you're in nature, you're surrounded by God's majesty, power, glory, and life, which has not been killed through development to suit human standards of order. We need to recognize that we tend to make things into deserts of life and call them paradise, our cities. And we need to appreciate the beauty of what God has wrought, and that there may be glory and beauty in life even in the mundane things in the dirt or in the grass or in the trees in ways that we cannot understand. That does not mean that we make them into gods. But we recognize that the way God made things is suffused with life and that our tragic pattern of behavior is to take the things that God has made alive and to kill them for our benefit. We need to accept the existence of the spiritual realm and all of its creatures, who, like us, have free will, some of whom use it to glorify God, others who work against His purposes. We need to pray for discernment of the spirits, as John tells us in 1 John 4, verse 1, to test the spirits, to see what things are so. Praise what is good, and avoid and seek protection from what is uh, working against God's purposes. We need to maintain humility. Because the spiritual realm is revealed at times in the, New, in the Old and New Testament, but in maddeningly few times, and only in short glimpses. And probably all because, as the heavens are higher than the earth, since the spiritual realm is higher than the physical realm, so the ways of God are higher than our ways, and His thoughts than our thoughts. It's probably because we really can't fully understand and wrap our head around what's going on uh, behind the veil. We can't just brush off or dismiss as mythological or fantastical parts of scripture that conflict with our post-enlightenment worldview. Our spiritual ancestors, indeed, may have been more superstitious than us, perhaps overly so, but I'd also like to suggest that they did not feel as alienated and separated from God and from life as we tend to feel, because they understood themselves in a much bigger cosmic drama than uh, we have been willing to imagine. But really, it all just begins with openness. Have you ever noticed, when you start trying to notice a detail or a thing, that you see more of it than you did before? I've done this before with types of cars. You know, before I got a type of car, when I didn't really know of a lot of people who had that type of car. But all of a sudden, when I had that type of car, I happened to notice a lot more of those cars around. Now, was I probably seeing more of those cars around than before? Were there actually more on the road? Probably not. The difference was, is that my mind... Because there's so many different stimuli, so many different things to perceive, it just kind of blocks out a lot of them if it has no reason to notice it. But when you start consciously noticing something, you realize that it's there more often than you might imagine. And that is also the way it is in the spiritual realm. More often than not, if you're closed to the possibility of its existence or that anything's happening in it, then you can go through your life and you probably won't find a lot of circumstances going to discomfort that view. But if you become open to the possibility... All of a sudden, you might start noticing things that you've been missing the whole time. It's not that they all of a sudden appeared. They were always there. You just filtered it out. And so, that's disenchantment. That's the place we find ourselves, as disenchanted, with a demysticized, a despiritualized worldview. 
It's almost complete in modern Western civilization. But it hasn't brought paradise. It's been ugly. It's been painful. It's been alienating. It's been isolating. It's, it's come at the expense of a view, beautiful view of the creation. And it might lead to an over-exploitation of our material creation uh, to our own eternal harm. But the time is long past for keeping God out of his own creation. We need to develop a re-enchanted view of his creation to appreciate his hand in all of it. Because the scriptures are clear. God is the God of the living, not the dead. The universe is not a sterile void. It's alive in God and Christ who sustains it and whom it subsists. And we should be considered privileged to be a part of it. So may we trust in what God has made known in Scripture and in Jesus, to recognize the spiritual realm exists, and to be open to its influence in the creation, and to live accordingly. We hope that you've enjoyed this message, and you've benefited by it. If you have, we encourage you to share it with uh, friends and family and others on social media. If you have some questions about some of the things we've talked about, you'd like to talk about them further, maybe you'd like to study the scriptures on some other subject, um, you'd like to learn more about us, maybe come visit us, uh, please check us out online, venicerichofchrist.org. We're also on social media. Uh, if you'd like to uh, contact me personally, you may reach me through my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.